episode 199 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. The Ground School app contains knowledge and skill videos. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. My name is Pete Zaccanino. Um, I've been air racing for 18 years. I'm the president and CEO of PC Aviators. And I've been a test pilot for most of my career. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's podcast is with Pete Zaccanino and he is a test pilot. Reno Air Racer has created, drafted, built, made his own airplane. It is a very exciting episode. He lives and breathes aviation and just the life of a test pilot. I really wanted to dig into that and understand how they do it because I have no idea. I don't even want to fly a home-built airplane that I built, someone else built, anyone else built, but they're taking first flights, second flights. They are literally up there for the first time in an airplane. I have no idea what's going to go on. It's just madness to me, but I'm happy he does it because we get to fly these really cool planes. Uh, so shout out to all the test pilots. Y'all are awesome. But Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot and the best coffee. I know you're tired of me telling you this, but it's the best coffee. Go ahead and get some. We should be having some new products coming soon. So we're really excited about that. Be on the lookout. Should be announced hopefully next week, maybe right before Christmas, but won't be available till coming into the new year. But Aviation, I am so excited for this episode. So without any further ado, here's Pete Zaccanino. Pete, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Well, thanks. I'm excited to be here, Justin. This is great. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, this is going to be fun. It's uh, it's always fun to talk with uh, anyone involved in air race, anyone that's a test pilot. It's just such a different side of aviation, and it's just fascinating to kind of dig into it. Uh, let's rock and roll. This will be a great uh, discussion. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, same question I ask everyone. Why aviation? What was it about aviation that even caught your interest, whether at a young age or whether you were later in life? Yeah, it's not an exciting answer. Um, as far back as I can remember, I want to design, build, and fly airplanes. There was no one in my family is in aviation in any way, and there was no single event. It was just something... That was in my blood. I don't know why, honestly. And so, you know, I was the classic go to the airport, wash planes, kid, get a flight when I could and go off to Ambry Riddle for my undergrad in engineering. So I learned how to design aircraft. And then I also learned how to work on airplanes, you know, and uh, here we are. So you not only at a young age knew that you wanted to fly planes, you knew that you wanted to design them. Yeah, I, I did. The design part satisfies the um, creative part that I have and enjoy. And then, of course, I like the accountability of being a test pilot and a pilot in general. It's not a, it's definitely not for the faint of heart, or it's, if it is a hobby, it's a very serious hobby. <laughs> so, how Embry Riddle, obviously, you just mentioned that you went to. Um, were there any other options? Were there any other choices? Or from an early age, were you like, I need to go to the most aviation-centric place in the world and, and just totally surround myself with it? 
Yeah, I, my uncle was a, a good mentor on the university side of my my options, and I did look at other schools: um, Purdue, Rutgers, Dartmouth, uh, Parks College of St. Louis, and then Embry Riddle. And um, when I narrowed it down and picked Embry Riddle for my undergrad in engineering, he was he just said to me, "Good choice," and uh, off I went. It was it was about that simple. What was it about Embry Riddle? I just like the focus on aviation. I, I didn't need to do two years of core mechanical engineering. I wanted to just jump into all things aviation as soon as I could. And for me personally, that was um, it satisfied that uh, that that need. Did you did your parents ever think that this is just a stage that you're going to grow out of, or from a very early age you're like, all right, this dude actually wants to be a pilot, design planes, and there's nothing we can do to convince him otherwise? Yeah, my mom was like uber supportive she was like what do you want to do i was like i'm going to design build and fly airplanes she's like okay you know she goes but i meant what are you going to do this afternoon you're only six years old you know (laughs) you're like i'm still going to design airplanes like i don't know where you're confused yeah right and i did i had a notebook and i drew pictures and what i thought was engineering for airplanes all the time and um you know i just didn't have the money to start flying early and uh, had to figure that whole financial side out. And, um, my mom was always to answer your question, simply super supportive. She was like, yeah, go do what you want to do. It's all cool. And she was very helpful too. Very helpful. So what did you do to, or I guess before you went to Embry-Riddle, did you have any ratings at all? Did you have any flights under your belt or did you, did you just go to Embry-Riddle with no kind of exposure to flying? I, I, um, I made enough money to do a few flights. That was it. My first flight was in a Tomahawk, a Piper Tomahawk. Ooh, 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 Tomahawk, right? Yeah, yeah, a famous Tomahawk. Um, and yeah, it was just the cheapest plane they had. I was like, yep, yeah, I'm in. And so that was my first flight. And then uh, I had, for some reason, an odd desire to fly tail draggers. And again, it was just, they look cool. I'm like, yeah, I got to fly those. But it re- really didn't start until I started my engineering degree because that... Now that I was out of high school, I could apply for grants and all these other things. And I did. I, I scraped up enough money to do my private pilot license um, on the side. It wasn't a part of my engineering program. So I just did it on the side because it was also cheaper. That was a you know super important aspect. And, um, and I banged it out. And then I figured out, well, if I get a commercial license, then I can fly skydivers while I'm in college and start to pay for flying and maybe get some other ratings and et cetera. And so I did, I was like, my God, I was like a hitchhiker. I was like, can I fly your plane for whatever reason? <laughs> it was, I was so overt about begging for flight time <laughs> and, and, uh, and it paid off. And, um, I started flying skydivers in Titusville, Florida. And my professors were all super tolerant. Um, they were like, you're going to go do what? I'm like, well, I got to be there at five 30 in the morning, get the plane warmed up and do all this other stuff. And so I'm going to miss this class at seven 30. Can I make it up at, you know, nine 15 or whatever? And they were really tolerant of me. It was surprising. Awesome. And, yeah. uh, it, it was awesome. And, you know, and then I got a job in the land, um, doing some stuff there and, um, you know, I got the flight time. Then I got my instructor rating, of course, and I was teaching tailwheel and then, um, had some really great people open up the doors into um, some aerobatics and got my first pit, pits opportunity. So it was, it was great. 
When you first started at Embry-Riddle, what was your end goal? Was it to do everything that you said, fly, design, do everything with airplanes? Or was it just to become uh, a manufacturer of airplanes, uh, to learn how to make airplanes? Or kind of what was your, your goal for your future? How did you want to make money once you left college, once you started? I had no idea. I, I, I was like, okay, I, I have to fly airplanes and I have to do engineering. And, um, and I enjoy mechanical things too. So I was like, well, what does that look like? And I started to put it together into, uh, pursuing a test flying concept. And, um, and I did, I thought it was the, the culmination of all of those things, designing, building and flying airplanes. And so I did, and, and it, it, it happened. It was a slow process because I was in ROTC and then the detachment, uh, commander is like, no one's getting pile slots. And we're, I was like, well, that's a bummer. Now what do I do? What <laughs> you know, one path has been removed and, uh, you know, and I stayed in longer than I probably should have, but, um, in the ROTC and, but I was like, they were like, absolutely no one in this graduating class is going to fly an airplane. And it probably wasn't great advice. And, you know, but I took it for what it was. So I was like, okay, how do I do civilian test flying? And Someone said, you just got to fly everything. It was kind of a, a quip. It wasn't really a mentoring guiding point. And I was like, all right, well, I just got to go get flight time and everything. And I started chasing that route while doing just a, you know, non-flying job. And, um, and it kind of worked. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I want to go back to, you mentioned in college, that you just went up to everyone and kind of like asked to fly everyone's airplanes. <laughs> Which uh, takes some balls. I mean, a lot of people kind of uh, are afraid to do that. Is that something, was it easier? Did you get a lot of yeses, I'm guessing, is what I'm asking? Or was it a lot of like harsh no's, like leave me away, leave me alone, you weird kid. Like I'm not letting you fly yeah, my airplane. Yeah. You know, I think it, it was definitely a different world, you know, 20 plus years ago. It was just, uh, yeah, a lot of people are like, no, this is my pride and joy. Nobody touches it, not even my spouse, you know, and... uh but then there were those that were like, yeah, let's go. Um, you can fly it. And um, the very much the opposite of right now in the current times. And uh, and then I met Clint McHenry, who is national airbag champion. I was like, you know, would you coach me while I'm flying this little Tabria? And he was like, sure. And he lived at this grass airport. Well, it's now paved. It used to be grass. And uh, he lived there at a house there and had his aerobatic planes. And he was like, sure. And so I would do this routine and, um, he would critique me and it paid off, you know? And then, uh, he was one of those people that said, yes, bottom line, but not a lot did. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. Like there's just a, such an uncommon thing or a common theme in these podcasts of like putting yourself out there, going to the airport and just showing up and you never know who you're going to meet or who's going to be the person that can open the doors. So it's so important to take the risks and just talk to people ask to fly an airplane, ask if they ever need one to go fly. And then you might be surprised at how many people say yes. I mean, there are going to be a lot of no's and people might kind of think of you weird, but go for yeah, it. This right. is what you want to do. You just got to go for it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and there was plenty of times I, I just didn't have the nerve to do it. I was like, ah, oh. and I would just linger around like this creepy kid. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you, know you got to really border on the side of being re that creepy kid or the kid that everyone wants to be around and loves that you're there. And that's a very fine line and you can cross it very quickly without realizing you crossed it. Yeah, exactly. You know, 
you definitely got to ask though. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And it's very uncomfortable, but I mean, it kind of sets the tone for your, for your career early on. And there's just so many people I've talked to. Like you said, you ran into, uh, I forget his name. Well, who was his name? Clint McHenry. Clint McHenry. Great. You can tell that I'm not in that community at all. Cause people are probably be like, yeah. how'd you not know him? And be like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> But you met him and you asked him and he said yes, because a lot of those people just love aviation and they want to see people do well. Right, exactly. And uh, it's surprising how welcoming people are. That's why I hate to see fences around airports these days. You know, it should be, it should just be more welcoming in my opinion. Except for the wildlife, they can stay out. So I'm okay with fences for that. But yeah, I know what you mean. That is true. Deer, stay away. Coyotes, foxes, you're not welcome. (laughs) I had a close call this summer leaving Oshkosh. Oh no. With a with a deer, yeah. We were flying uh, a friend of mine, I was dropping him dropping him off. He had to pick up his little airplane and um we were landing at this neat little airport in Indiana. I don't remember the name off of it without looking in my logbook, but um and uh we were on approach and it looked clear and it was clear. We touched down, and this deer started crossing and it got really really uncomfortable <laughs> but no no impact occurred and off the, off the deer went one of the ones you just start like thank you god or you start breathing heavy like oh yeah. my gosh that could have been so oh, bad. Yeah. yeah oh yeah <laughs> um kind of your time at embry riddle and your path when you were there would you say you were one of the few that wasn't at that school to become a professional pilot or not necessarily you are a professional pilot, uh, more like the airline route or to fly corporate only, not to be involved in so many other things or specifically for you, air race test pilot design. Yeah. Um, I definitely had, had a unique career for sure. I've actually given lectures about it at the school and other schools and just, Hey, you know, there are different options out there. You don't have to take a more uh, typical path. Um, nothing wrong with that, of course. But just, hey, this, this worked for me. Give it a look. But um, yeah, I, I was definitely, you know, full on abnormal and wanting to go this route because it wasn't an engineering route. It wasn't a military route. You know, 90% of test pilots are prior military um, or whatever the actual percentage is. It's a big number. And uh, so, yeah, I was definitely in the minority. <laughs> yeah. When you give those speeches about that, because one of the reasons why I started the podcast was to mainly highlight how people get to either the end goal of being an airline pilot or find a different career in aviation that they never knew they could do. But would you say when you give those speeches and those talks, do you think it really resonates or do you think there's this kind of mystique and there's this kind of like a, uh, just everyone is not necessarily brainwashed, but they all feel like they have to be an airline pilot. Do you feel like you get through and uh, maybe one person's like, oh, it's cool. So I, I could actually do something else and be happy. You know, it's kind of like the books I wrote. Um, if a few people get some of the deeper meaning out of the books, great. And that is really rewarding. Um, and similarly, if it's just a enjoyable read, that's also rewarding. And the, the lectures and talks are the same way. If if you touch someone um, in the audience and, and put one person pauses and goes, wow, this is an adventure. And it doesn't have to be just a standard role. And, um, and it gets them thinking a little bit. That's a win. And um, 
and maybe people look at things a little differently in general after, after I, you know, I have a talk. Uh, what would you say to someone right now that's kind of in the dilemma of being like, yeah, all my friends are airline pilots and I, I like airline world, but I don't know sure. what's for me. What would you explain to someone about finding their own path in this career and just kind of the path that you went and what you'd recommend for them? Uh, do, do some of those basic things that we hear about as up and comings list out the things you like and, um, and see how they align with different careers. And then one of my big things I tell everyone is go find people who have done it well, not people that are just kind of doing it, you know, Hey, I'm at, I'm at this job and it's, and I'm, you know, only flying eight days a month and they call up and I'm like, Oh, I got a little cough. You know, that's not the person you want to talk to. You want to per- talk to the person that enjoys their career. It's not just a paycheck versus time worked, but they enjoy their career and listen to them and, and, and then get a few of those, you know, someone that enjoys the airline route, someone that enjoyed the military route. Um, and who knows what other routes, flight training, um, charter. I mean, there's, as you know, there's so many different routes, right? But um, find someone that enjoys whatever career they've chosen, they enjoy it. And it's not just a job. And and then see if they're, they're the reasons they enjoy it align with your core reasons. And if they do, well, you should probably consider that. Did you ever personally consider um, giving all of these other dreams and goals you had to follow the airline track or to follow the corporate track or anything like that, or are you so dedicated to the idea of becoming a test pilot, uh, doing more in aviation and not just becoming a pilot or airline pilot? Yeah, it, it never was an option for me. Um, I've, I've gotten to fly some of the larger planes and I love them. I mean, they're great. Um, but I, I do think life is an adventure for me and I've enjoyed pursuing that adventure, you know, cause we do currently our, our core, um, business is managing private jets. And it was a big pivot for me because I've flown a bunch of them and have those ratings, but it was a pivot into that business uh, because test flying was changing, you know, and part of my career path is you better be pivoting when you need to, or you'd be the guy that's out of work. And, um, and I have, and I had on a few occasions, so, you know, that adventure for me, um, it needed to be in a, a less structured program. The flying could be structured, but I mean, the, the career had to be less structured. Does that make sense? Yeah, Justin? it does. It does make sense. And I kind of want to dive into being, becoming a test pilot and that kind of life first. Uh, obviously, you've done a lot of stuff and there's a lot to cover. And I specifically, if I don't ask this, remind me to ask. I have no idea what the Reno Air Races are. That's just such a fantasy to me. So later, I need your explanation of it. But yeah, first, absolutely. I want to jump into becoming a test pilot. Um, we need test pilots, right? Test pilots are crucial in uh, aviation or aircraft development. They're crucial into making sure a plane is as close to ready as it can be uh, for, for people to buy it or to go uh, on sale or to be flown. But sure. how does one become a test pilot? Like, there's not many of them. Uh, I'm, there's very few. I'm guessing. I, maybe there's more than I know than than comes to mind. But what's your path for that? How do you set that goal and make it happen? Yeah, I think my path was harder than it needed to be. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, you know, the doors that opened for me wouldn't have opened if I wasn't an aeronautical engineer. Um, and I also opened some doors myself, myself because I had you know, good experience in, in various um, areas of aviation. For example, I had a bunch of experience with a with the HUD system and that opened doors into other aircraft. And and now some of these Justin I have NDAs on. I can't say who the manufacturers are and things like that. But you know, there were pointy planes <laughs> and there were planes that carried uh, executives. <laughs> um and um I think nowadays if I was given advice, it would be to align with a manufacturer because I think it's a faster path uh, into the test world. And they would have you doing benign things like production tests before going into experimental flight tests. My path was, you know, like I said, if I wasn't an aeronautical engineer, it wouldn't have happened. That was paramount. Um, then there was things that happened on a project that involved the Air Force that um, they opened up doors because I had to get training, um, Air Force qualified training that really fattened up my resume. Um, but it took time and, but it was flying cool planes. So I was thrilled, you know, <laughs> I was never worried about the retirement plan. I was just like, woohoo, that's cool. Let's go fly it. Um, but you know, it did lend the credibility I needed, um, the experience I needed. Uh, I had so many smart people give me guidance. Um, Len Fox was just a, he is a tantamount civilian test pilot. He's awesome. Um, and others like Len that shared projects with me, invited me to do their independent contracting projects with them. Um, and but boy, there can be gaps in there, and I filled in those gaps with ferry flying and and flying in planes I was rated in. You know, maybe a Falcon, maybe a Citation or a Gulfstream, and they kind of filled in the blanks a little bit because there was times where I was like, eh, my next contract test job is six months away. You know? Got to pay the bills and, <laughs> before that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and so I did. I kind of leapfrogged around with filling the blank work that was really fun. I mean, it was great work taking a little jet around the world or across the Atlantic and, you know, et cetera. And it, it led to an expertise in international flying that has been just golden for me um, and very rewarding and, and also making, you know, a decent buck. And, uh, uh, but again, it kind of fed into my, you know, when I say adventure, I don't mean you have to, you know, adrenaline and, oh my God, I'm flying through freezing rain and I landed and I almost died. I don't mean that, that, cause that's, that's foolish flying. So it's definitely uh, an adventure, but not the adventure you want to be on. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, we want to avoid those th things. Like I say, you want to leave the Superman cape in the flight bag. You don't want to wear it on every flight. No, yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, you got to bring it out, but you don't want to do that quite yeah. often. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be the guy that says, there I was. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> if you have too many there I was like, stories, it's starting to come down to your character and the, your decisions you make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you know, part of our job is, is risk mitigation. But yeah, that was, that's, that's the semi short version of a long story about my path. Um, for me personally, the engineering was key. Um, varied flight time in a lot of different aircraft, a lot of different jets, um, spending my own money to get some experience. And I don't mean buying type ratings. You know, I, I think that's not a good plan. 
But um, I did get some experience that I I paid for uh, that led to other things that I wanted to pursue. And, um, you know, early on, one of those examples was becoming uh, very skilled at formation flying. And I had just put the bill to do that early on. And, you know, now I teach it. But, uh, yeah. So you mentioned you kind of went the long path. Um, Is there a path to say... Someone like me, I come away from this conversation and I'm like, wow, I just want to be a test pilot. Is that possible or is it too late? Like how, what's the short path when you sing with the long path? Sure. A, I'm a big believer in nothing's too late. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping knee deep into this writing world and potentially a movie world. And, you know, I'm halfway through my career, right? Um, but the shorter path I do think is either take a military um, route, which doesn't appear short, but it kind of is. And, you know, do, do your tours of duty there and then pursue a test pilot, test piloting job or um, align with someone, a manufacturer in their department and uh, apply to be a test pilot. And sometimes that means, you know, you go down to Gulfstream and you apply to be a demo pilot and, while you're doing that and getting your experience in type, then you're like, you know, Hey Bob, I want to be in the test department. Oh, okay. You know, that's, that, that's much easier for someone within the company to transition over to, and they'll give you in-house training and start you with production tests and then go into experimental, experimental tests, which is, you know, a huge highlight in a career as a test pilot, being able to fly prototypes and new aircraft. Um, and, uh, and go that route, you know, aligning with a manufacturer that gives you that experience and opportunity and, and may, may need you to leave that manufacturer and go to a different one at some point for the better job. But um, that is a very good path to do. I mean, Boeing is an outstanding company to work for. Um, they're, the test pilots I've worked with from Boeing were just fantastic guys and very happy at their jobs and, uh, and fulfilled, I think. What's the difference between, for, for a test pilot mentally, what's the difference between working for someone like Boeing or Gulfstream? Someone that has like a, a designed track record of doing things. Um, I mean, they, they know how to build airplanes. They know this will go up, this will go left, right, down versus <laughs> a brand new company that has a brand new design and the plane has never been flown before. It's the very first prototype. And like, you probably have in the back of your mind, like, I really hope that they designed this plane well. <laughs> like, there's like, I don't know, just what's the difference in mentality between working for two of those kind of companies that are completely different? Sure. Um, let me answer it this way with a little bit of a story. Uh, so it was just, you know, I'll call it Pete Incorporated out doing test jobs early on, you know, Hey, can I test fly your plane? Right. And, um, I met a guy, I flew a, a, an amateur built kit plane, a Lance air to a classic breakfast flying. And this guy comes over to me, his name is Bob. And he's like, what are you doing flying this year? You know, and, and that's Bob. We've been friends ever since, but uh, this is a long time ago. And he's like, long story short, because it's a super long story. He's like, you need to help us with Lance Airs. And I'm like, huh, what are you talking about, right? And I said, let me look into this a little bit. And I looked into how amateur built planes are flight tested. And let's just say I was a bit alarmed. And uh, 
<laughs> I started digging into it. So someone got a hold of me via Bob and said, Would you test fly my Lancer I just finished building in my garage? I'm like, no way. That is a horrible <laughs> idea. I'm not trying and, to die, you know, bro. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that was the bubble above my head, but I'm thinking about this. I'm like, okay, you have to give back. And I can share a lot of industry knowledge with this individual. So I said, I'm going to come out with a friend of mine. We're going to look over your airplane. And so I wrote up this assessment of his airplane with all these deficiencies and category B and C deficiencies and all this. And I think his head was spinning on his neck. Like, he's like, who are these Martians? You know, I just want my plane flown. What's the big deal? <laughs> and, uh, and then we wrote up a report and, you know, it was like a 10 pager, just quick and dirty. And I said, okay, I'm happy to fly your plane. I think it's going to stay together. And I started testing it on the ground. And that was like a four day event of taking it apart and putting it back together and um, evaluating things were done safely and airworthy. Then I took it around the pattern and um, started through a series of test cards. And I think I did like 50 test cards for that plane. And we wrote up a about a 120-page test report for him, an RTR. I handed him the RTR. And again, his head, this poor guy's head was spitting on his neck. Like, you know, I'm telling, telling him how horrible his plane is. And, you know, <laughs> and it was just a very unbiased, without opinion assessment, you know, dirt stab and this stability and coefficients. And, and, and the poor guy's looking at me like, huh? And I'm like, hey, so good luck. And I think it'll stay in the air. And But you really need training in this airplane. Well, he apparently was thrilled and showed this RTR to a lot of people. Now the phone's ringing about experimental home-built airplanes. And uh, we turned it into an additional part of the business where, you know, we're not just flying circles in the sky for phase one flight test. We're treating it like an industry flight test program. And I've presented this topic at, you know, AirVenture, Oshkosh, in the forums. I said, Flying an amateur build experiment on the plane is way more dangerous than what is going on at Boeing with an X plane. <laughs> you know? And that's the coming back to your original question, Justin, is I mean, you have no support, you're on your own, and you're hoping Bob in the garage made a good aircraft. And a lot of times they have. But sometimes you gotta, you know, have them fix squawks and make it better. So it's it's wildly different and it's um, flying the amateur built planes for people. I've done it a bunch um, over the years just to try and keep people safe. And um, the, uh, the assessment of it though, there's way more that goes on as opposed to a safety review board and SRB for a prototype. And I've been fortunate enough to fly with new companies and new prototypes and you have to go in there you need to evaluate this plane from nose to tail. I mean, I don't need to know the resin type. Well, sometimes you do, but, um, you know, we don't have to reinvent which, which, what type of rivet was used. But the same token, you need to have a strong sense of what to look for mechanically, aerodynamically, and otherwise to say, yeah, we can fly this plane. And twice, there was two prototypes I never flew. One... I know never flew. The second one eventually flew with a guy and they really band-aided the fixes and it did fly though safely. And I was happy to see that. Um, all the others we've been able to correct uh, squawks and deficiencies and make them into a safe flying airplane. 
What's the, so say you're doing the Landslayer program with amateur home builds. What's the number one thing you look for? Like right away that most home builders mess up and it's the first thing you go to, it's like a call, like, up. Oh, see, you didn't put this screw in the tail. And that's like the first thing you check every single time. Or is there not one of them? You know, I know what to focus on. I can tell you that, but it, it's not a, it's definitely not a single item. Um, my ground inspection and aircraft inspection takes a long time. I'm sure compared to others, but um, a fuel system is super critical because they get there's there's there are mistakes in the fuel systems constantly, and with venting and testing the venting and testing the fuel supply, not just running the engine on the ground at a thousand RPMs, you know, your Continental or Lycoming, but genuinely testing the fuel system. Um, and so I go through that, and I I do find squawks there. Um, Flight controls, of course, that is every single connection from beginning to end. And um, I have found, would they probably, would they have, you know, wrecked the plane? I don't know. But would they have made it harder to have a successful outcome? Yes. And I found some issues there that have been corrected, especially with clearance issues and also the right type of safetying, which might not have revealed a problem in the first uh, 50 hours, but maybe in 100 hours it will. Um, the other thing I've seen with composite planes is the pass-throughs, meaning wires, how they pass through a, a carbon fiber or fiberglass firewall and um, high, high risk there where, again, in 10, 20, 30 hours, whatever the number is, they're going to have a problem. And carbon doesn't do well with electricity. Um, <laughs> um, they've been the, those areas have been the higher squawk areas landing gear is less because you know if the gear doesn't come down in your average airplane it's not going to kill you right it might be awkward and embarrassing and we do extensive gear retraction tests for a plane that has that type of system but still it's not going to kill you it's just going to upset the owner and builder right um you know uh but uh sources of engine failure from fuel venting and fuel supply are a big watch area and have and are and continue to be. And then it's fire risk. I go through every single attachment in the engine compartment leading up to uh, the engine and, of course, including the engine. I mean, everything. Um, one of my good friends, because so many people are just great people and you build friendships. You know, uh, I'm going to pick on them for a second. My, my great friend, Len Fox, was going to test fly his amateur built in this case, another Lance Air story. And uh, he, um, Len just ran out of time. We're, we're all on schedules, right? And and the owner, John, he said, that's ready, Pete. Len's been through it. He's ground tested. It's ready to go in the air. And I said, well, John, I'm still going to do my stuff. And I trust Len completely, you know, to follow up on. And I get in there and I'm going through the engine compartment. And the starter wasn't fully attached to the engine. Oh, solid. Yeah, no big deal, right? <laughs> yeah. And so if I started ground testing, we would have had a $10,000 worth of damage. And uh, and so, you know, there's this aha moment. And I was like, hey, John. And he goes, wow. And I'm like, yeah, that's why we have to go from tip to tail. You know, I got to check your prop bolts. But then, honestly, Justin, flights two, three, four, five, six, and 10, you need to be looking at stuff. You know, after the first flight, the cow's coming back off, certain inspection panels, flight control checks, 
they need to happen on flight two, three, you know, you, this plane is still being tested and I just don't fly circles in the sky. You know, I have a test program for amateur built planes. When does a, so say we're, I'm building a plane, you come out, we do, we're at flight 10 right now. When does a plane or when do you feel comfortable signing off on a plane? I know there's probably certain parameters, but just like generalize it. Is it usually around like the 20th flight or the third? Is there like an actual flight number or what makes you kind of sign off on an airplane and be like, this plane's good. Like, good job. You built it well. Uh, look out for this stuff. But like, what's the general uh, time frame? You know, every plane has been different. Um, my friend David, again, he, be, he became a great friend of mine. Um, he, he built a composite airplane. It was beautiful. And it was almost the first plane I inspected that had no deficiencies or squawks. And then I found something on the left main landing gear retraction and they had a scramble that night to get it corrected and ready for flight. But, um, and that's relatable to answering your question. It, it depends on the plane, you know, there's squawks that come up and it, and it doesn't mean it wasn't built well. It's just, it was built by a human and that human has stresses in life and challenges and pressures you know, from family and business and otherwise. And, um, you know, there was a problem we had with a plane. The engine kept quitting on me and I couldn't find it. And I had nine engine failures and there was nothing pointing to what the cause was. It was so weird. We finally found it, but that took 10 flights to find. And, um, you know, every time we thought we had a solution or a fix and it just wasn't right. And, um, and it was hard. Um, but that's a test card that had to get repeated 10 times. So, you know, in that case, it took much longer. But then there's been other planes where I've banged out five test cards in one flight, 10 test cards, because everything's just going really well. And um, you can get through that even before phase one is done and, and call it signed off. Um, but then you have the, you know, the minimum hours for phase one, which I I fully agree with because things just happen. Um, and uh, so it, it is varied. I think the fastest I've seen a plane complete, in my opinion, that the necessary test cards was somewhere around 15 hours of flight time. Um, and I've seen planes that 100 hours later still aren't done. When I have to ask, when you said you have nine engine failures, was that with that one airplane? Yeah, I mean, in the I air don't count or in the, the ground? No, they're in the air. Um, <laughs> Do you yeah. stick really close to an airport when you're doing this? So you like, whenever you like venture, you're venturing up in altitude and not away in miles. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And and, there, and this one, you know, there's always more to the story. In that case, we were on eleven thousand foot runway, and that allowed us to test more aggressively because of that runway length. And otherwise, that plane would have been another, you know, who knows, 20 hours of flying to find that problem. But there was no way I was going to be in a non-landable condition testing that plane. No way. And, and we never were. It was completely risk mitigated and, um, and turned out, you know, very successful. But um, so I don't count those nine as, you know, in my quote records of engine failures. You know, I have like 24 engine failures and I don't count that as nine of them. (laughs) Which one is more terrifying? The first engine failure you ever have or are they all terrifying in their own way? You know, test flying for me is a a very 
focused, calm event. It's not an adrenaline rush event. I wouldn't say they're terrifying, but they're intense because depending on and how they occur, you have to you have to have a solution immediately. That's part of rehearsal and practice and you know uh, training, which I'm a big proponent of. And you know, takeoff engine failures are a big deal. And um, if I was testing an amateur built plane on a 4,500 foot runway at sea level, that that confidence to do the first flight takes me a lot longer because I need I need to get to 1,500 feet or whatever the number is, right? Before I'm comfortable to um, uh, take that plane, you know, off on that runway, I need to get to that altitude. So that means more ground runs, more high speed taxi tests, more of the buildup technique I'm applying before I just go launch into oblivion. Hey, it looks good. Let's go give it a try. That that that's not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it'll be good. Yeah. Uh, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. yeah, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I guess, is there any airplane that you will not fly? Is there something that has just left such a bad taste in your mouth that you're just like, absolutely not. That plane will kill you in a heartbeat. And if I further your question, do you mean that I have flown, not the two I refuse to fly eventually? Uh, let's do both. If you have answers for both. Yeah. Well, I mean, the two prototypes I didn't fly, um, one never flew. And the plane, you know, it was a prototype that'll never fly. It was a single engine turboprop. had way too many stability issues that were determined on the ground. And it never flew. I don't know what became of it. Um, the other prototype flew. And um, not with me. After I wrote up, uh, God, it's like 80 different squawks on it. Major deficiencies, not just squawks. It eventually flew with a bunch of Band-Aids. Um, I don't know if I would fly that plane. I would... I would have to really evaluate what fixes they have done to make it airworthy, um, to make it reliable is better stated. Um, and that plane is flown by someone else. And I don't know the person that did the flight. Um, so there's those two. Planes that I've flown that I wouldn't fly again. Let me think about that for a minute. That tomahawk the first time. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever signed off on the tomahawk, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a story there. Yeah. Um, it was funny. I heard one on the radio just a couple days ago. It was, uh, yeah. I was hey, like, hey, tomahawk. If it's the only plane that I could afford, then maybe. But I would uh, like yeah. to, to not buy a tomahawk. But hey, it's there for someone. Someone loves a tomahawk. So more more to Yeah. Him. More, more power, power to him. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't think there's planes that are really intense to fly. Um, but in the right environment, I fly them again. Yeah. With the right support. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any of them, including prototypes, I wouldn't fly again. Is there any plane that you can specifically name without getting yourself in a lot of trouble that maybe you were surprised <laughs> got off the ground and is actually for sale and people <laughs> buy? Or if you can't say the name and you can just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> you see it on the ramp and you just look at it like oh wow she's there well but there is a big but um they did fix the problems the deficiencies you know deficiencies are different in squawks right a squawk is you found a bad fuel line and you just replace it but you know deficiency means there's a directional stability issue 
um, during, you know, uh, stability testing and they fixed it. There was one plane I definitely won't name that they're now bankrupt. They made a twin engine piston and a jet. It was awful. It was so unstable. It wouldn't pass anything. It was a terrible design. Um, and, uh, they went out of business, you know, but, uh, Hard to stay in business with a terrible design. <laughs> yeah, right. But there are planes I've tested that had deficiencies that have been corrected, and they turned out to be a good airplane. You know, it's just, it was a process, that's all. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. A great retirement from the airline industry starts with finding the right financial planning partner. And that's why RAA's approach to financial services is exclusively built around the needs, concerns, and desires of the airline community. I guess you could say it's in their DNA because RAA was created by pilots to serve pilots. And having proudly served pilots for more than 30 years, RAA has built a financial planning approach designed to not only meet your goals and needs, but also address the unique short and long-term concerns that accompany a career in aviation. Because whether you're just entering the airline industry or nearing your final flight, the team at RAA is ready to support your journey from takeoff to touchdown. Learn more about the benefits of working with an RAA airline specialized advisor at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. Kind of the last question or last couple of questions I'll ask about being a test pilot. We can move on because there's a lot more to uncover and we're running out of time fast. But um, <laughs> what? Wow, I just forgot what the question was. Okay, here we go. What's the most, if you can, like the most terrifying, horrifying, or your least favorite time being a test pilot in an airplane? And like I said, don't get yourself in trouble. Don't like name names or anything or uh, say the story in a way that doesn't give it away. But like, what's the one time where you landed and you're like, holy smokes, I got lucky. Uh, I've never really had that reaction. I have to tell you, um, I've had the reaction of, that was a little too close. <laughs> um, I'll tell you one. We're not going to name it, but the plane was doing well, and and I was about to explore flying at slower approach speeds. And um, it had been doing well up to that point. We were probably fifteen flights into it, and I was on on approach to this desert airport, long runways, and. Uh, I'm on approach and everything's normal. And I went to bring the stick further aft to change my angle of attack and add another positive amount of angle of attack. And the stick stopped. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. And I had a jam. I had a limited stick travel situation. And it was the most, because of my altitude and everything else, it was the most unnatural thing to do, but how do you lower angle of attack? Well, there's several ways, but one way is you add power, which is all things being equal, it lowers your angle of attack. I want the full power at about 400 feet doing 120 on approach and full power, reduce my angle of attack, increase the effectiveness of the elevator. And I was able to climb away from the runway that I was pointing at. <laughs> and that was a, you know, so I climb out, I do, I do the go around, I initiate an approach up at altitude, you know, to test it at 130, then 120 again. And indeed, I'm getting this limited stick travel. So I landed at high speed, higher speed, and everything was uneventful. But it was a, ooh, that one was a little bit 
awkward. (laughs) Take a couple deep breaths when you land. You're like, I'm going to take a day off. You know, I'm going to go to the beach. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you take the plane back and you figure it out and we found what it was and it was a classic chain of events with human error involved and, and it didn't show up until I got to that low speed regime. And, uh, (laughs) yeah. And because when you did the ground sweeps on the controls with an unloaded plane, everything was fine. And when I landed, it was fine again. Um, sitting there just parked, um, checking the controls. So, yeah, that was, that was one of those that was pretty awkward. (laughs) So I think one thing is important to not in your case, it's not necessarily mistakes because you're a test pilot and you're kind of, I mean, maybe it is mistakes, but you're looking for, for ways to, to find the deficiencies in airplanes and like we need to discover them. But for someone that is up and flying, let's say they're just flying a Cirrus, they're just flying a 172 and uh, a tragic event does happen and they have an engine failure, they have a control lock, they have something where they're not necessarily trained for this, it catches them off guard. You have a lot of experience in this kind of situations. Uh, you look for them because you're crazy, but <laughs> I'm just kidding, you're not crazy. But <laughs> what's kind of someone listening right now, if you could imprint anything on them if they could take this one thing away what would you tell them in that situation to fall back on to make sure they get out okay and they get on the ground yeah first of all fly the plane it's a, it's, it's cliche but it's true because people do stop flying their planes in an emergency and they kind of uh, hyper analyze or freeze or any a number of psychological reasons for it but they stop flying their plane they're kind of a passenger and sometimes too long. Sometimes they do get caught up and uh, fly the plane, um, rehearse things. Um, and you should, uh, I, to this day, I do it. I still fly a lot of different types of airplanes from jets to my pit special. And when I'm on takeoff, um, before I get onto the runway, I rehearse what I'm going to do if I lose, lose the engine, for example. And I know it's a hot topic right now, like turning back. I know the gates I have to pass through to be able to turn back and land opposite runway, um, you know, altitude and speed. And, uh, and I've had to do that. Um, and then, you know, people trim is a big deal in my world. Um, and people just put in trim arbitrarily, you know, they increase the elevator trim and they really don't know how long they did it. And what I mean by that is if you're applying trim as you count how much trim you put into it, is it one second? Is it two seconds if it's electric trim? If it's manual trim, like on a Cessna, and you're in cruise in a 172, and you lose your engine, um, how much trim do you need to be close to best glide? Well, it's one and three quarters trim turns. And you should know that for every plane you're in. And keep it simple. Um, a friend years ago taught me, he said, lose your engine, it's ABC. Airspeed and trim for it because you're going to be distracted. And if your best glide speed is 80 knots and you're distracted and you go to 85 or 75, that's not going to kill you. But if your best glide speed is 80 knots and you're all over the sky between 120 knots and 60 knots, that may contribute to an unsuccessful emergency. Um, And so you should know ABC, airspeed and trim for it. It's a four-second hold on the trim. It's one and three quarters on a Cessna. Um, you know, Piper, it's one and a half turns from um, low cruise, two and a half from high cruise. You know, you should know those things for the plane you're flying. And then B is best glide. 
our best suitable landing site and a, and a plan for getting there. You know, too often people in flight training are taught, well, where are you going to land? Oh, I'm going to land in that farm field. Okay, go around. Well, that's not really the whole story and best suitable landing site and a plan for getting there. Meaning, if you're at best glide and you do a 360 degree turn, how much altitude do you lose? Um, that's part of your plan. And then C, of course, is checklist. And your immediate items on the checklist should be memorized. Um, I had an engine failure where it was a single engine piston plane and turning the key to the left mag, the engine ran, but on right and on both, it failed. And that's, that's early on in your checklist, right? Um, and, you know, mixture for piston planes is a part of your checklist. You know, if the mixture's out, split the difference, put it halfway in. If the mixture's rich, pull it out an inch. Um, so more than just mixture rich and have a good day. Because if you go mixture rich on a turbocharged plane at 15,000 feet, the engine's going to quit and stay quit, right? And think about if you're at 15,000 feet in a turbocharged plane and the uh, turbos fail or the hoses to the turbos fail. Well, you're just a normally aspirated plane, but if you have mixture rich for 30 inches of manifold pressure, well, now you're over rich and the engine's going to fail and stay failed. But you've got to lean it out and treat it like a normally aspirated plane. You'll have a normal return to landing because you just lost some turbo mechanism and you are not boosting your engine anymore. Um, so ABC, airspeed and trim for it, B, best suitable landing site, the plan, C is checklist and should be memorized, period. Um, yeah. Words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you so. don't ever have to use it, right? <laughs> yeah. No, you, you don't, but that's what, even for a hobby pilot, it's still more than just a hobby. A bad day of golf means you're embarrassed at the golf club. You know, a bad day of flying can have a much more serious consequence. That's why it's, it's always more than just a hobby, even if it is a, a hobby situation. So let's get into air races a little bit. So I recently posted about how I just have no idea when the Reno air races are going on. I was like, I'm so confused by this. This seems like uh, Quidditch and Harry Potter. Just like, I have no idea. Like, is it real? What do they do? Like, just explain very basically what the, the Reno air races are. Sure. Uh, it's a way to spend a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so just aviation in general. <laughs> Um, okay, so the Reno races, it's a pylon race. It's a circular course. It's not round, it's not oval, but it's, you know, circular. And uh, it has 10 pylons. Well, in most of the tracks, there's four different tracks there. And it's based on your speeds. So in the jet class and the sport class, we race on a track that's 8.1 miles to go around the circumference. And it's typically eight planes racing at the same time between 50 and 250 feet, the maximum height on the course. If you go higher, you're disqualified. Um, and you have out of bounds going wide. And of course, if you cut a pylon, go inside a pylon with any part of the plane, you get a penalty as well. And um, there's six classes. They're, each class has their own rule. There's the Formula One class, which is super cool. Um, they only use the Continental O200 engine. They have a, a wing area requirement. You can't, can't get too small, for example. Then they have, of course, other rules. There's a biplane class, which has a lot of single seat pit specials, but that's not the only plane. 
And then there's the T6 class, which is just that. It's a cl- class that you only race T6 Texans. Um, then you have the sport class, which is the class where the plane has to be an amateur built kit plane. Lance airs, glass airs, um, swear engines, um, several different planes have been quite successful. There's a bunch of RVs there that do a great job. Um, then you have the jet class and the unlimited class. Jet class is the fastest class is part of the appeal to me because we, you know, we're doing over 500 miles an hour every time I race out there. So you have to pass rookie school, rookie schools in June. You're expected to show up with strong formation skills. Um, some, I would call it mild aerobatic skills. So that if your plane gets flipped around because of weight turbulence, you're not going to stuff it in the ground. You'll have some sense of how to fly your airplane out of that. And, uh, and then of course the race rules and strong knowledge about the plane you're bringing to rookie school. It's called PRS pylon racing school. And that is in June and it's a series of instructional events. Um, we do formation warm up, and then we go into the racing and you're tested on your racing ability that you are taught and also dealing with emergencies. You'll have a simulated engine failure that you're expected to recover to one of the runways successfully. And if all that goes well, you're invited to come and race. The races are always in September. We show up on typically the Friday or Saturday before. We start our technical process on that Saturday. Sunday is a massive in-brief and class briefs. And then we start um, practicing. We practice Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We qualify on um, Monday, Tuesday, and a little bit on Wednesday. And then we race on um, Wednesday through Sunday, with Sunday being the gold championship and all the championships. You know, Each class has typically a gold, silver, and bronze section of the class, and it's based on speed. Fastest eight are in the gold. The next fastest eight are in silver, and the remaining fastest are in the bronze. And um, enter the course, uncooperative formation, cruise around the course, keep it safe. And, uh, you know, best man, best plane, all combined together win. <laughs> <laughs> that easy. Right? Sounds, <laughs> sounds simple, right? Done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So is there's, I'm guessing there are more races than Reno, but Reno is kind of, um, I don't know about the destination or if it's a Daytona or like the Brickyard. Is that correct? Or what's the deal with Reno yeah. compared to other places? So there used to be a circuit. Um, a lot of liability reasons and other reasons that I, I'm not a fan of <laughs> um, have really reduced those that race circuit. Um, the number one topic among North American racing is more venues. Edmonton and Canada has talked about it and move forward. Rome, New York, Georgia, Phoenix, they're trying, but it's a big task. Um, so Reno is the championship. There are other races. There have been other races recently. They've kind of been one-off. Um, I participate in a race in Portugal. We've had races in China and Thailand, but we've, we've, we have lost, um, the, uh, how would you put it? The consistency of it. You know, we, we, 
we've misstepped somewhere along the way and the wrong things have become important. And so racing is, you know, it's, it's frail right now, but it's still, it's amazing. I mean, it's awesome. It's such a unique event. It's everyone in aviation should attend the races as a spectator and please stop by my pits and I'll welcome you. I'll stop by next year. I want to go next year. So yeah, yeah, I've never been. So yeah, I should definitely head out that way and make it happen. Yeah. How's that for the quick explanation? That was good. That was perfect. (laughs) It's kind of exactly what I thought it was, but I was just wanted to make sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. So I'm looking at your, uh, I'm actually on epicaircraft.com right now. I was looking at your profile and you have 650 first flights, and I'm guessing that includes all the Lancer home builds, right? It's everything. Okay. It's, you know, prototypes, it's big company, military, you name it, it's everything. And then it also says you've designed five aircraft and built two of them. Were you successful in your two builds? Were they able, did they pass your, <laughs> your or were they the two aircraft you'd never want to see again? <laughs> <laughs> um. One was the classic engineer that wants to get something in the air type of build, meaning very simple, light, sportish airplane. Um, nothing exciting. It was just, yep, I built, I designed and built an airplane. Here you go. Um, never did anything commercial with it. And it was just kind of a, hey, cool, that worked. Um, the, then I built that, those, actually, those numbers are old. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to tell um, update them then. Come on, man. Yeah. Come on, epic. You know, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I helped them in a around the world trip uh, a few years ago. Um but the uh I get back to your question. And then I, um, the current build I've done is a kit, and that was the Lancer Legacy and um highly modified, completely made for racing, you know, making it stronger but also lighter. Everything is 100% carbon, you know, removed windows, you name it. Um that plane has been a challenge, but it, but we've, you know, we've met the challenge. It's doing well. I didn't bring it to Reno this year. And that was a, a decision I made. It wasn't an easy decision because I want to see how the improvements were all doing on the race trip on the racetrack. Cause it doesn't matter how much flight test you do. The proof's in the racetrack mm-hmm. period. Yep. And, we'll see how old that, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the, um, uh, the other planes I've designed, one never got off the drawing board. It's completely designed monoplane, aerobatic airplane. I could start building it tomorrow. And that was a kind of a business decision because there were and are so many monoplane aerobatic planes that have been built and they've made one or two. And I was like, I don't know if this would be a smart expense to incur. <laughs> <laughs> And so I didn't. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, that's kind of the short answer on that topic. Do I have another design in me? Absolutely. Do I have another build in me? Yeah. <laughs> but the tone in that voice says it all. Yeah. But it has to be a certain airplane. Yeah. I don't want it to be cosmic. I want it to be a little bit simpler. So when I think of uh, building airplanes right now, Uh, obviously a lot of people might come up with Mike Patey and I don't know what his, I don't really know much about Mike other than the fact that he built Draco and he's building a new plane right now. I think it's called Scrappy. I'm on his website right now. Um, 
I, I just didn't really even understand that people can build their own airplanes outside of like Lancer. Like it's just so fascinating that you can come up with a design and you can build it yourself. Like that's just so impressive, honestly. And uh, it, it's incredible to see. But what I'm asking is, do you see the future of maybe more Mike Pates, more people like yourself where uh, we can come up with more economical situations and uh, where we can get a cheaper price point to still get more people involved? Because right now, I mean, obviously, not right now, all around aviation, there's a big hurdle of, of finances and it just gets more expensive and more expensive and more expensive. I mean, look at going to, I want to buy a 182, uh, a 1959 182 I was looking at and they're like $150,000 <laughs> or more. Yeah. It's insane. But do you see a future yeah. of um, designing and building aircraft kind of, I don't know about coming back, but maybe more people getting involved? Yeah, I think the technology change that's occurring and it's really adaption of technology. It's not new technology. We've been, you know, I'll use the current buzz phrase. We've been 3D printing for years, but it was called something else. You know, one of the terms was stereolithography, which is similar. So it's not new, but it is an adaption of, of the technology. I think that's going to have an impact. Um, I think collaborative engineering work is going to have an impact. But, but creating a prototype from scratch is a big expense. Um, in time and money, you know, people adapting a, an, an existing airframe into a highly modified project that they share with the world. That's very different than making it from, you know, zero to hero. Um, and I don't know if there's going to be a place where you can, you know, 3d print a whole lot of cool stuff and output a plane and, less than 500 hours of work, you know, right, right now it's three to 6,000 hours for a simple plane, um, from beginning to end. And I'm just not sure. Um, I think well, cloud engineering is happening, but I think it has to happen in a more efficient way somehow. And we've kicked the idea around, but yeah, prototype building is not, I, I, I don't think it's a path to having your own inexpensive airplane. Um, you know, building, say, an RV, that's one path for having a pretty cool airplane that's not as expensive. Um, getting help with the build, um, getting some expertise with the build, absolutely. Um, but I don't think it's the, you know, the prototype concept is for everyone. That's for sure. And something's going to change, though, in the next 20 years for people getting into aircraft. I don't know if it's the electric planes. I don't know if it's um transporters i call them something that's got four props and is more of a drone style transportation vehicle that can go 30 minutes and take you to costco and recharge you know but i do think we're on the cusp of something different happening and i don't know what it is i'm trying to get get my arms around what that might be so that we can be a part of it, you know, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, yeah, it's just incredibly expensive to <laughs> to go buy an airplane, to be around aviation. So anything we could do, maybe it's EVTOLs. Maybe that's the way. Maybe it's drones. I don't know. But uh, the future is going to be wild, and it's going to be changing fast, too. What's new technology now is not going to be new technology in five years. So it's going to be constantly changing. And I think timing is going to be the biggest thing. Whenever you're just at the right time of um, – whatever new technology comes out, that's going to be whoever can come out on, on top. Right. And a part of it is just adapting current technology. It's not being used, honestly. And, uh, 
and, and a cloud approach to engineering where many, many, many people are contributing to a solution in parallel as opposed to in series. Then you have a real progression of uh, prototyping when that occurs. Absolutely. So you you mentioned how you are now, are you, are you completely done with test being a test pilot or is it still something you do every once in a while? Um, the test flying industry has changed. And, um, you know, we've pivoted. Do I still do test flying? Yes. Um, but now it's back to more of Pete Incorporated, helping out on a project, um, occasionally an amateur built plane. But uh, I've pivoted more to the corporate jets over the last several years and, and less of the test flying as, you know, what pays the bills. And, you know, we've been managing airplanes for folks that can afford them, thankfully. And um, it, it was a natural pivot because I've flown so many different um, corporate jets in my career for different reasons. It wasn't hard and I enjoy it because they're on an adventure and they like to hear my input on international travel because I've been to so many places. And, you know, down tubes, lining up events for them at, you know, in Africa and Egypt and, you know, uh, Italy, wherever, Thailand, it doesn't matter. Um, and also hotel guidance. You know, it's like a concierge service and it's been really fun. It, you know, it's, it's a different fun and it's a different flying with different challenges. Absolutely. Um, you said you got to morph into what is working now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and not define yourself by the past, you know, it's, it's over the chapters been greatly reduced. That's, that's all good. You know, time to move along. Absolutely. Well, I have some rapid fire questions for you. So these are just uh, very simple aviation themed questions that you answer as quick as possible. Don't explain anything Just say the first word that comes to your mind. Sound good? I'll do my best. All right, <laughs> here you go. Number one, what is your favorite airplane ever made? F5. Favorite corporate jet? Gulfstream 550 so far. Airliner? 777. What about just a small GA airplane? Pit Special. Ugliest airplane you've ever seen? And I'm sure you've seen a lot and we probably don't know them all. <laughs> There's this Russian plane and I would have to look up its name. I did the air show in Russia. I saw it and I thought, oh my God, did that really fly? And it is but ugly, and I can't remember what it's called though. But it is a goofy, goofy airplane. <laughs> I hate to say this, and I don't want Russia to like come after me or anything. But a lot of stuff that they build is is kind of unfortunate looking. If I do have to say so. Oh yeah, you can say it. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You they can know say it, it, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a job done. But does it look the best? I don't know. I guess looks are subjective, though. They might think it looks great, so that's good for them. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. What's uh, what's something that you learned throughout being a pilot that kind of surprised you? So one thing from like your skills, either being a test pilot, uh, just being a pilot in general, that you've been able to transfer into everyday life. Um, I, I think just uh, attention to details and um, and paying attention to your situation around you at all times. Like I've always said, flying will make you a better skier because you're more aware of things and you look at it a little differently. And I think situational awareness would, would be the phrase I would use to answer your question. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Uh, who's one person in the industry you would like to meet most? It could be someone that's died or someone that's still alive. Ooh, I've been very fortunate in that regard. Um, I've flown with some really great esteemed pilots. Um, 
I don't have a quick answer for you that. Um, Bob Hoover was a mentor to me. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Chuck Yeager, I'd, he and I would yell at each other in a fun <laughs> way. I heard there was um, a lot of yelling whenever it came to Chuck Yeager. <laughs> <laughs> I think it gets misrepresented, frankly. I think he was great. Um, flown with Armstrong and his Baron, you know. Uh, that's a hard, you know, I'll tell you exactly who. I don't even, I'm surprised I hesitated. It would be the Wright brothers. Cliches that may be. Um, they had to design, build, and fly and teach themselves everything. That is huge. You know, they didn't know how to fly. So they were not just designing an airplane, but they were learning how to fly it too or teaching themselves how to fly it. That's yeah, insane when you think about it that way, right? <laughs> yeah. What do you do when you get in the air? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Good luck, Bob. Or yeah. Orville in this case. Yeah, know? who wants to go first? Whoever draws the straw <laughs> sucks to be you. That's really funny. Uh, what's your favorite overall yeah. thing about aviation? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear you quite. Say that again. What's your favorite overall thing about aviation? Oh, freedom. Yeah. What's the least favorite flight you've ever flown? Least favorite flight? Oof. Uh, when I crashed my vampire. That sounds like, yeah, it sounds like something to avoid. <laughs> Is there a backstory yeah. behind that? Yeah, I'm going to have to save that. We'll have to reconvene. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. At least you're healthy and okay. Oh, yeah. I was uninjured, but the plane was totaled. Oh, man. That's awful. Um, let's see. What is your favorite flight you've ever flown? Most gratifying? Oof. Um, well, much against what I recommend builders of their own airplanes, it was probably when I personally test flew my legacy. That was pretty rewarding. And I'm highly against test flying your own builds. But I built my legacy and I did test fly it myself. And uh, that's a long story why I didn't, didn't have one of the three people I would have let do it. But anyway, it was very rewarding. So we got two stories to the next podcast already. <laughs> yeah. Ready yeah. to go. Always leave them wanting more, right? <laughs> What's your favorite airport to land at? Oh, um, might be Courcheval, France. Least favorite that's airport. A cool least favorite airport to land at. I don't know if I have a least favorite one. Yeah, I don't think I have a least favorite airport. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? Mm, I'm going to call Switzerland on that because <laughs> both are, I, there's things about both I enjoy. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or cities? Or the ocean, since you have some ferry pilot in you? You know, getting in a plane and flying across the ocean is is a very different reward. I do enjoy that a lot. But I I never get tired of looking down and watching the ground go by. I, I never do in a small plane or a big plane. I'm always just you know, checking out the scenery, cruising by the U.S., you know, yeah. or Europe or wherever. Would you rather fly an Airbus or Boeing? Boeing. Favorite airline livery? Pan Am. Would you rather fly one long flight and whatever airplane you think of, the longest flight you can possibly do and in that same airplane, would you rather fly the long flight or short flight? So as many touch and goes or as many quick turns as you could possibly do in a day. I enjoy long flights. I've done a 14-hour flight and I enjoy 
making your nest and figuring out the web, the weather across the world. Yeah. I enjoy that. All. Yeah. Artist check ride you've ever had. CFI, my first CFI check ride. <laughs> Biggest regret in your career. If you have one. I don't have any regrets in my career. Biggest win. What'd you say? Yeah. I have mistakes I've made, but what's the biggest mistake you've made? (laughs) Biggest mistake. Yeah. Um, You know, they're all just those little classic mistakes. I left the chocks in on a golf stream, you know, and it's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What's the biggest Um, win of your career? My first win at air racing. That was big. Would you rather fly as a passenger in a CRJ 200 or an Embraer 145? Uh, CRJ 200. Ooh, they both suck though. <laughs> as a passenger. <laughs> um, Piper or Cessna, if you would recommend one of those aircraft, I know that you'd probably rather have your own home build, but you're being forced to choose between Piper or Cessna. Who are you choosing? I'd, I'd pick Cessna. I'm a Cessna fan. If uh, someone came up to you today, they love this podcast, like, hey, I really want to be a pilot. Should I go to 141 training or 61? What would you recommend? If they are a disciplined individual, I would do part 61 on their own. What is your overall favorite airline? What I mean by that, let's say you have to, you're going to go pick up a plane in Singapore. Uh, It can be any country, but it's very, very far away. And you have two business class seats or one, whatever it is, and you can fly in any airline. What would you choose? Uh, 747. What airline would you choose? Oh, oh, what airline? <sighs> that's tough. Um, actually, we actually picked one that I really like. That's Singapore Airlines. I've used them. Used <laughs> when, them. When I said Singapore, I was like, dang it. You might say Singapore Airlines. <laughs> yeah. They're, no, they're really good. Yeah. They're really good. That's good. Um, yeah, they are really good. Perfect. Well, that is all for the rapid fire questions. My last question for you is someone's listening to this right now and they see your career and they, they see just you being successful in so many different ways and they want to be successful in their career. What are three tips or three suggestions you can make for someone to not necessarily model their success after you, but to create their own success in their life outside aviation or aviation related? Find people that have done what they do well and get some advice from them. And ignore the naysayers, ignore those that say, oh, maybe that's a sign you shouldn't fly because your first lesson, the plane broke, you know, that's crap. And, um, but listen to people who have done it well, that would be number one. Number two, stay disciplined. You know, we all have our moments. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes, but there's a core amount of discipline, whatever you're doing, skiing, golf, flying, you need a certain amount of discipline if you're going to do well at it. And then um, accountability, because that, that just embraces so many things. You know, it, there's honor, there's loyalty, there's uh, trust and truth. That's all in accountability. I think it's summed up. Perfect. I love it. Well, Pete, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I truly appreciate it. Uh, it was a great story. And I, I'm sorry if I took too long at Test Pilot. I just think it's fascinating. <laughs> you have a lot yeah, more no story problem. in you, Fun. so we'll have to have you back on sometime. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I welcome it. I really do. It'll be Perfect. fun. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
AV Nation, that's a wrap of episode 199 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, send it to your friends, force them to subscribe, literally force them to subscribe. Don't let them leave their house. Well, that's kidnapping, so don't do that. But force them to subscribe so we can get more subscribers and more people in the AV Nation. I hope you're all having a great day. And as always, happy flying.